Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I have a thought on my mind today, and it's really about what we believe. We have some new members in the church, and I think it's important for us to cover fundamentals. There's been some discussion of late about the role of the Bible versus the role of articles of faith or confessions of faith. And it's easy to get very confused on these things. We have in the front foyer out there, we have our articles of faith posted on the wall. And Elder Phelan years ago preached through kind of each point on the articles of faith and kind of explained why we believe that's a good summary of what we find in the Bible. And I don't have any issue with our articles of faith at all. And I don't want anyone to think that this particular sermon is in any way launching out against our articles of faith. I was ordained in the ministry here in this church, and I was asked about many of those articles and to express them in my own words. And do I agree with those things? And I did. I affirmed them all. But we have to at the same time recognize that articles of faith are a summary statement of what some people at a point in time said they believed the Bible to teach. Okay? That is a very different thing from Scripture itself. Amen. Now, it may be right, and I don't think there's anything wrong with our articles of faith. However, we have to maintain this distinction between the Word of God, which is the authority, unquestionable, absolutely unwavering authority from the Word of God, and statements throughout the course of Christian history where some Christian people stood up and said, we believe this, 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 and this. Those are two different things. How are they different? Well, the Bible is really the handbook for the faith once delivered to the saints. That's terminology used in the Bible. The faith that was once delivered to the saints, it is codified in the Bible. We believe it to be inspired, inerrant, and preserved. That means we can rely upon the Word of God. And we, in this church, we take a position that we believe the King James Bible is the Word of God in English. So, that forms a basis for us of being able to say, herein lies the truth. Now, we as Christians have to approach this perfect standard of truth, knowing that it's true and right and correct. And we don't always get it right in how we interpret things. Any of us over the course of our lives would have to honestly say, I have learned some things. Oh, by the way, if you hadn't, you've never been a disciple. You think you just entered the church and you knew it all? I mean, sell crazy somewhere else. We're all stocked up here, right? You learn as a disciple. That means there were some ideas that were in the I believe portion of your mind, your own personal articles of faith that had to be edited and corrected over time, did they not? This is the point I'm trying to make. We have to understand the difference between what the Word of God says and what we say we believe about the Word of God. The Word of God alone carries that authority. It alone is, well, first of all, let's think about it this way. Let's talk about the faith once delivered, which I'm referring to as the Bible here, versus articles of faith, 
or confessions of faith. And I would make the distinction between those two by saying articles of faith are generally short statements, like what we have posted out there in the front for you. Maybe 10, 12, 13, 15 brief statements about what we believe are important truths in the Bible. Those would be kind of the articles of faith. And if you look across many primitive Baptist churches, you will find that they have very similar articles in a lot of respects. There's some differences here and there. But there's a lot of overlap between what we believe in these different assemblies. But those are relatively short, man-made statements of this is what we believe the Bible to teach. Confessions of faith are kind of like, well, let's blow that out and make it much more comprehensive in terms of the things that we say we believe. It goes into much more detail and gets a lot more uh, doctrinally specific on things. And that's the way confessions of faith are. So confessions of faith are kind of like a blown out version of articles of faith. They've got more detail. They deal with more doctrines. They deal with more things that are maybe not core in terms of the, the truths that maybe the articles of faith cover. All of these are in some sense the produce of men. We agree with that? The Bible was written by men. Now, I understand that the Holy Spirit is the author of the Scriptures. But it came through an inspired instrumentality of men who wrote these things down. And there was a special providence of God in that, such that this book has a special status that no other book in human history has ever had. Okay? Now, confessions of faith and articles of faith are likewise the produce of men. However... They do not have this guarantee that they are without error. That means we cannot approach them with the same attitude that we approach the Bible. Very, very important. You may say, well, I've never really regarded our articles of faith as having that level of authority. And that's good. It's very good that you don't consider it that way because I think that's putting it in its right order. What happens is, all too often the non-inspired, extra-biblical writings of men begin to take on an authority within the church that they were never intended to have. Now this is rampant throughout Christendom. I won't name the examples, but they're very evident. There's churches that have lots of dogma and doctrines, and they say, this is how we summarize it. Various confessions of faith, they say, we absolutely adhere to that. They may nominally say, well, we don't really think this has the authority of the Word of God. However, they functionally use it in that way. See what I'm saying? I can't tell you how many people over the course of my ministry I have interacted with who say things like, I believe in sola scriptura, scripture alone. And then when we get into talking about what we believe, they say things like the Second London Confession of Faith teaches this, or the Westminster Divines wrote the Westminster Confession, which states this. And in many of those discussions, I would say, wait a minute, I thought it was Scripture alone. Well, if you poke and prod at that a little bit, you either find that they get pretty agitated over that evident problem in the way they're approaching explaining their doctrine, Or you find out an even more disturbing thing, which is that they say, well, when we say Scripture alone, we mean Scripture is the most important, but really other things can be considered as well. It's kind of, we put a star on the Bible, but really we put these other things on an equal footing. 
And that's the thing we have to be careful of. These things were all written by men, but only the faith once delivered in the form of the Bible has this high position of authority. If you look in the confessions and some of the articles of faith, you'll actually find affirmations of this. One of the first things in many of those documents is to say, look, the Bible is the sole rule of faith and practice. So they almost start off with a disclaimer. Like, we're going to write this summary of what we believe, but in so doing, we're not saying that we are now taking on an authoritative position in this. We're just simply affirming the Bible has that position, and we are expressing what we believe. Now, let's consider this other comparison point. So all these things were written by men, although written in different ways by men. The Bible alone was inspired, right? So you can't say the confessions of faith had that same sort of inspiration that the Scriptures had. We don't have anything that tells us that holy men of God were moved by the Holy Ghost as they wrote the Second London Confession of Faith. There's no affirmation of that, but the Bible says that of itself, right? So it's not inspired. The Articles of Faith and Confessions of Faith are not inspired. They are not inerrant. They contain errors. I'm astonished with how many, even our old Baptist elders, will want to defend something like the Second London Confession of Faith, when I know full well they don't agree with some of the things that are taught in that. It's a very strange position, and I think what it is, is that we want to be contained within the security blanket of saying we believe what some old Baptists 400 years ago believed, right? They affirmed this document. A lot of them signed that document and said, that's what I believe. And so I seem like I'm out of the way a little bit if I take issue with that. Well, what's the sole rule of faith and practice, right? It's the Bible. I had thought in this sermon to actually give an explicit example of what is in the Second London Confession of Faith that is wrong, I may do that in another sermon. I don't think I'm going to have time to do that today. But I've heard people sort of in the abstract say, well, I take some issues with it. But I think it's much more meaningful when you actually open up the document itself and you say, here's what it says. And it's clearly not what old Baptists believe. Now, the Fulton Confession, which was essentially primitive Baptist appending notes to the end of the Second London Confession was an attempt to make that document say what we actually believe. And I actually agree with their notes more than I agree with the source document itself. But I think, having come from a Presbyterian background, and given that the source document, the Second London Confession of Faith, in many sections is a direct copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith, I can tell you that what a lot of Baptists have written about that confession and what it means is dead wrong. It's not what the people who wrote meant by it. And I've sat under the teaching of the people who actually were part of the body that, that uh, are part of the denomination that developed that confession. So there's a lot of issues involved in that, and I won't get into that in this particular sermon. But we find that confessions of faith and articles of faith are not inspired. They are not inerrant. And... You know, we say the Bible is preserved. I believe that. I think we have reasonable line of sight to believing that maybe some of these confessions are preserved. I think we have historical copies of them and whatnot that could lead us to believe that. But just in those observations alone, we see that articles of faith and confessions of faith are sitting on a totally different footing than what the Bible is. 
we simply cannot have the degree of confidence in those documents that we can have in the Bible. So that's a very fundamental point. I would say that articles of faith and confessions of faith are kind of like a time capsule. They're like a bunch of people got together and they said, okay, what do we believe? It's really a we believe document, right? And they're going to assert that this is what we think the Bible teaches. But it's a statement of what a particular group of people believed at a particular point in time. Given all that, I want to start with kind of the source and the core affirmation that we should be rallying around. It comes from the Bible, by the way. I can tell you, I've had so many discussions with other people around this, and they want to quickly go to, well, you know, one of the first affirmations in the Second London Confession is that the Bible is the sole rule of faith and practice. Well, so what? That thing was written in 1689. What did people do for 1688 years before that? Does the Bible itself not affirm that it is the sole rule of faith and practice? Does the Lord Jesus Christ not tell us this? Do we need a bunch of Baptists who photocopied the Westminster Confession of Faith and then said, oh, this is a Baptist confession? Really? If you did that in college and you got caught, they call that plagiarism. Okay? So that's got all kinds of issues with it. But it speaks to this issue of how man is inclined to want to move towards the confessions, which are a summary of things, rather than just going to the source. Go to the source document. (laughs) When I was in junior high school, maybe some of you all remember this. It's probably different now in the the modern internet era. This is pre-internet. You'd be assigned books to read, right? And we thought the greatest life hack in the world was, well, you can go down and buy the cliff notes to that book, and you just read the cliff notes, and then you can write the report on the book. I see some grins out there like some of y'all either participated in this or uh, at least are aware of it, right? Everyone knows, and I've actually had English teachers tell me this because my mother's an English teacher, and I used to say this sort of thing to her. She would say, if you do that, You're not gaining anything. The only one that's being cheated in this is you. Because you didn't take the time to read this great piece of literature, which would have been very profitable to you, would have rounded out your education. You took a shortcut, bought the cliff notes. Maybe you got a B on the paper. Maybe you were able to pass through that. But you cheated yourself. Spoken like a true English teacher. Well, that's exactly what God's people do when they run to the confessions rather than running directly to the Word of God. You have the greatest work ever written sitting before you. You have an inspired work by the pen of the Holy Ghost, and you think, I think I'll go read what the Westminster Divines wrote, or what a bunch of Baptists photocopied from the Westminster Divines and put over here and called it their confession. It's pathetic. It is absolutely shameful that Christian people will take that perspective. But I get it. You know, it's been well said that men's minds are lazier than their bodies. You don't have to spend much time walking around Walmart to figure out men's minds are pretty lazy. See what I'm saying? That is an astonishing truth, but it makes it so that men are prone to hit the easy button. Right? 
We're lazy spiritually oftentimes, and rather than digging into the Word of God, which was written by the Holy Ghost, inspired, preserved, inerrant, right here before us, we go get the cliff notes. And then, if we become familiar with the cliff notes, we quickly dub ourselves an expert in the Christian religion. And that is a shortcut, it's an easy button. And you're the one that's getting cheated when you take that approach. And I think that's what people end up doing with confessions and articles of faith sometimes. Here's what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 4, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, what's Jesus going to do? How's He going to respond to this? Is He looking for the cliff notes? But He answered and said, It is written. This is not the cliff notes He's referring to here. He's talking about Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's Jesus taking it right to the source. And it's astonishing to me. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, made this statement. He wrote it in Deuteronomy. He quoted it in the New Testament in a time of temptation. He goes straight to the source. And yet we as Christian people are so prone to say, well, Cliff Notes told me that this is what happened in chapter 2. It's shameful. It's really shameful. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's the affirmation you need. That supports everything I just told you thus far. It places the Bible and the faith once delivered to the saints on a very, very high precipice that no other document can take the place of. And everything else is kind of dwelling down here in the realm of what some people said they believed about things. Now, look, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You might take this statement that I'm making here, where I'm kind of trying to put articles of faith and confessions of faith on their proper footing and in their proper place, and say, well, if that's the way you think about it, then we just can't believe anything that anybody says about anything. Well, don't we have preachers? Well, you're saying you can't believe the preacher. Well, what I'm saying is, the Bible holds a unique authoritative position. God has blessed us with ministers who know the truth, and who preach the truth. But you should not accept what comes from this pulpit strictly on the basis of, Brother Dan is an old Baptist elder that was ordained sitting right there next to his wife in this church. That does not confer upon me the status of, I cannot be in error about something. In one sense, it would be easier for you to just say, well, everything he says is right. There's kind of arrows on both sides of the road on this deal. And I think you see Christian groups that fall off into those bar ditches in both ways. One way is you get into this realm where you say, well, he's the man of God, and whatever he says must be the truth. That's just totally wrong. New Testament is full of examples of the apostles behaving badly, sinning, making mistakes. You can't make that assertion. So 
there are some groups who have that sort of allegiance to their pastor or to whoever the leader of their movement is. They say, well, he's the man of God. You can't approach the man of God because he is unassailable. Big mistake. You play that out over time and you're going to see it goes nowhere good. The other side of it is to say, well, what you're saying now, we just can't believe anything about anything. I guess Christianity is just all mysticism. You can't believe what your pastor says. You can't believe what some Christian wrote 300 years ago or 200 years ago. Well, that's a ditch in the other side because God did give men to instruct His church. What I'm talking about here is there is a matter that must be modulated. I've talked about this concept of modulation before. You can't set it on cruise control in one way or the other. You can't park the car and do nothing, and you can't set it on cruise control going 70 miles an hour and never give it any more thought. You're going to have to manage this over time. You're going to have to modulate it. That means you have to be actively involved. You have to prove all things, hold fast that which is good. You're involved in this. One of the ways that churches jump the tracks is that ministers get up, they start preaching something that's evidently not true, and people are not paying attention. Maybe their only familiarity is with the cliff notes. They've never really read the actual book itself. They don't even know if it's wrong. And if they're sitting there thinking, well, he's the man of God, then I guess it's right. You let that go over time, and you drift off into however many (laughs) denominations we have today. Wildly different doctrines, many of which are so evidently contrary to the Bible, it's ludicrous. Honestly, it's absolutely ludicrous. So, you're enfranchised in this, and it's important that we understand this distinction. In the time that remains, I want to look at our articles of faith, briefly. I don't know if I'll get through all these, but... I want to do this in a little bit different way. I don't want to read the article and then go find the verse. I want to read a verse and then ask you whether or not you think this article makes proper reference to that. Because that's really the order it should take. See what I'm saying? I don't want to spin this around. Let's don't get it twisted. Well, it says, we believe in the one true and living God, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Now let's go see if we can figure out how to sustain that. I understand that this is a summary of something we say and... That makes sense to me. I think people are perfectly at liberty to write summaries of what they believe. There's nothing wrong with that. Honestly, we should be doing that more (laughs) than we do it. We should be telling people, I believe this more, right? Kind of like evangelism, telling, sharing the truth with people. But I want to make sure we understand what the proper order is here. It's not we have this thing and then we go over here and try to support it. It's that the Word of God says things and that's where we got the idea of saying, well, we believe this. See, it's a different order. We have 13 articles of faith in the church. I don't disagree with any of them. I'm particular about the wording of things. If I had written them, honestly, I would probably state them differently in some respects. Some people would say, well, brother, what are you doing there? You going to restate some stuff? Yeah, it's just something a man wrote, and I have the liberty to do that. I don't know, brother, our old Baptist brothers, I don't know that they would abide with that. Well, guess what? You're totally wrong. First of all, the 1689 Second London Confession of Faith, as I've said many times in this sermon, was largely a carbon copy of a Presbyterian doctrine. So they believed they could copy some stuff. Old Baptists believed that. They also took what was copied, and they modified a lot of it, like the section on baptism. 
Because how are you going to have a Baptist document that comes from a Presbyterian organization that doesn't even believe in the proper mode of baptism? Well, you're going to have to edit it. So you've got to have the liberty of editing, don't you? You've got the liberty of copying, the liberty of editing. What else? Well, they actually added some stuff, too, because they wanted to restate. So, oh, wait a minute. You've got to have the liberty of copying, the liberty of editing, and the liberty of adding and composing additional things to it. Yeah, and they added some extra sections, too. Yeah, you've got to be able to add some more sections to it. That's what old Baptists did. So anyone who would take issue with an elder who's going to say, I, wanna, I would like to state this differently or whatever, they're totally ignorant of Baptist history anyway. By the way, the Fulton Confession of 1900 was taking that document and sticking footnotes on it to try to make it say what we actually believe, when in reality that document was not written to affirm what we actually believe. Now that's just the truth. So I am engaging in an exercise that is no different from what the Fulton brethren did or all those people who signed the Second London Confession did. I'm doing the exact same thing. Are you going to deny me the liberty that they had? On what basis? You extend it to them, you're going to have to extend it to me. All right, we have 13 articles of faith. The first two are kind of dealing with the source, like God and the Bible. We have seven that deal with what I would call doctrine, core doctrine. Tulip, right? Depravity, election, the atonement, preservation, and regeneration, or um, irresistible grace. Kind of have seven that fall into that category. And then the remaining four are kind of the church ordinances. These are the things that we do in the church, the big things we do in the church, right? So you're talking about baptism and washing the saints' feet, proper mode of baptism, and who has the right of baptism in the Lord's table, those sorts of things. So I want to start by reading a verse. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. Now, if you're going to follow along, we're going, we're going to try to go quick because I'm going to run up on time here if we don't. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's the Trinity. Our articles of faith do not spell out in great detail the doctrine of the Trinity. There have been giant works of theology written on Trinitarian doctrine. And our articles of faith don't try to spell that out, but we do point out what's clear in the Bible, what's in this text. We see Jesus being baptized. We see the Spirit of God descending like a dove. And we see a voice from heaven, which is His Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's the Trinity right there. You may not understand how all that fits together. And I suspect most of God's people don't really understand that. It is a very mysterious thing. However, it is clearly testified in the Bible. And on that basis, you know, things like 1 John 5, 7, which says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Can I explain every aspect of that? No, I can't, but I can believe that because that's what's stated in the Word of God. On the basis of texts like that, our forefathers who founded this church say, we believe in the one true and living God, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Now, I don't think it's controversial to say that's a pretty concise summary of things that are contained in those two verses I read, right? That's why we believe it. The second one is one I've been working on right now, and I won't read this now because I've already read it, Matthew 4.4, 4, right? We're not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. That's something that Jesus Christ said. He's quoting Deuteronomy 
And it's on that basis and other scriptures like that, like 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures given by inspiration of God and profitable, etc., etc. You know that. On that basis, we make the summary statement, we believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God and the only rule of faith and practice. Even our own articles of faith right here on this second one is saying what I'm saying. The Bible is the only rule of faith and practice, not the articles. If I were to improve this article, I would say, and the only rule of faith and practice, not these written articles of faith. (laughs) See, I want to be really clear about it. Does that mean I disagree with it? No, I don't disagree with it. But I recognize it's not an authority. You see what I'm saying? The third one, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. You all know that one, right? According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. That's read all the time. And why is it so important? Well, we believe it's important. It was so important among our Baptist forefathers that they thought, well, that's one of the things, if we were going to have a list of 13 things, that ought to be one of them, right? That's kind of how important they regarded it. And that's why they would say, we believe in the doctrine of election. That's not controversial. It's all through the Bible. That text makes that clear. And that God chose His people before the foundation of the world. Now, that's practically taken right out of the language of Scripture. That's not a controversial statement for us. There's many other texts that teach this as well. Matthew 24, verses 22 through 31, 2 Timothy 2.10, Titus 1.1. There's a bunch of references to election in the Bible. So I don't have any problem with that statement at all. By the way, that's unconditional election. That's the you of Tulip, right? God chose. You didn't choose. You didn't make yourself more desirable because you did some stuff. And then God chose you based on what? No, it's not any of that. It's God chose. Unconditional election. God chose because He had a purpose in saving a people for His glory. Romans 5.12. That's an important text. Uh, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. There it is. Adam sinned, and we all became sinners, and it passed on to all of us. That is why we say we believe in the doctrine of original sin. Essentially, that verse is just saying we believe Romans 5.12. I was talking to Brother Sonny Bonner this morning, and really that's one of the battleground things of depravity. Much of the Christian world doesn't really believe that man's totally depraved. They don't believe that man fell into this sort of a condition, but that's what it says. There's other texts that extend out on that some more, and they kind of bleed into the next one, which also speaks about depravity. Verses like John 6.44, which is very upsetting to some, to the doctrine of some. No man can come to me. There's a lot of preaching of the form of every man can come. It's hard to imagine an idea more contrary to the teaching that no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. We'll say, well, they say, well, but it's except the Father draw him, and God's drawing everybody. Well, if God's drawing everybody, He's going to raise them up at the last day, and they're all going to be eternally saved. And most of your friends and neighbors who want to take that angle on, they're not going to affirm that everybody's going to heaven. So that's just not even going to work at all. So as a result of texts like that, and things like Ephesians 2, 1, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins, we can make the statement. We believe in man's impotency to recover himself from the fallen state he is in by nature, by his own free will and ability. God's going to have to do it because man cannot recover himself from a dead state. 
I don't have any problem with that statement at all. Those two, number four and five, are kind of highlighting the T in, in TULIP, right? That's, those are the total depravity statements. Number six may be my favorite, honestly. Let's look at Romans 5.19 first. Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. How many obediences of you are in that text? There's some being made righteous in this text. It ain't got nothing to do with your obedience. You follow that? Amazing how many people will accept that everybody fell. We all fell as a result of what Adam did. We became sinners. But they can't accept the idea that we're made righteous by what Christ did. And that's what we believe. You say, well, but I changed. I, I was converted. I don't doubt any of that stuff. I don't doubt that you love the Lord. I don't doubt that you made some decisions. You chose to follow Christ. You chose to get baptized. All these different things. I don't doubt any of that. Every bit of it. It's too late to the party to ever take credit for you being eternally saved. It's just the motions of the new creature in Christ. Repentance is the proper motion of the new creature in Christ under gospel instruction. If you're a child of God, you've got the ears to hear, you hear the truth, if you're convicted by it, how could you be convicted by it? The Holy Spirit, <laughs> the Holy Spirit you, you have to have the Holy Spirit to be convicted by it, right? Are you ever convicted by something that you don't believe? So we see here that Christ's obedience, one obedience, actually accomplished something. By the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. You want to know why you're righteous? You're righteous because of Christ's obedience. Your obedience had nothing to do with that saving transaction. But it is an evidentiary fruit that you have faith and you're a beneficiary of the covenant. See that? That's all it is. It didn't accomplish anything in terms of your eternal salvation. But it does show forth a work of grace in your heart. Another text that I always like to hit on this, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which may be one of my very favorite passages in the Bible. For He hath made Him to be sin for us, Christ our sin bearer. This is the imputational transaction. God is able to take as the almighty accountant of sin... He is able to take things off of your ledger and put them on Christ's ledger. That's your sin. Christ, you're now responsible for this. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. See, the sin that He was bearing was not His own sin. It was the sin that was placed on Him from you. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Here's this person with a perfect righteous life. And that righteousness is put over on your account. That is the double imputation whereby we are eternally saved. Christ took on your sins and paid the debt, and you were given His righteousness by imputation. You didn't do anything for it. This is one obedience that accomplished these things, right? And it is for that cause that our sixth article of faith can say, we believe that sinners are justified in the sight of God only by the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, the Bible speaks about justification by faith, and what too many people believe in that is that until you exercise faith in God, usually in the gospel message, you are not eternally justified before God, but that is wrong. Jesus Christ accomplished this at Calvary. It occurred before you ever came into existence, and it is in effect. 
That doesn't mean you were regenerate all your life or any of those things. That doesn't mean you understood this all your life. You may not understand it today. But your understanding of it does not make it so that it's not so. It's so. His one obedience accomplished this. And the way that you're justified by faith is in the sense that it is by faith that you come to know and understand and appreciate and have joy in the declaration of the gospel. The gospel is a declaration of justification. It's not an offer of justification. The transaction is already done. It is announcing what Christ accomplished. Faith lays hold of the pre-existing fact of your justification by Christ at Calvary. It's a powerful thing. It's when you can lay hold of it in your experience and say, I hear it and I know it and I have joy in it. That's a wonderful thing. And you may have been totally ignorant of it before that. So it's very powerful in terms of how it plays out in our experience. But the justification of God is not waiting for you to ratify it for it to be in effect. You see that? Jesus didn't like send a bill up to the president's office and it's sitting there waiting for him to decide, well, until I sign this bill, it's really not a law yet. It's not really true. It doesn't work that way. It's already true. The gospel comes to you and tells you this thing is true and this is what has happened. And it's by faith that you're able to embrace it and experience it and say, wow, that's my Savior. That's what I believe. I can have peace with God because of what He has done. Because of His one obedience. Okay? I love that sixth article of faith. I wouldn't edit that one. I think I'd probably take that one as written. The seventh one, I'm going to have to really speed up here. John 5.25, The hour is coming now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. That's a direct statement about God speaking life into one of His people. Many other verses like Titus 3.5, Galatians 4.6, And it's on that basis that we say we believe that God's elect shall be called, regenerated, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's a great affirmation. By the way, that's the I in TULIP. That's the irresistible grace or the immediate Holy Spirit regeneration component of TULIP. John 10, 27, 28, and Romans 8. These affirmations that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That passage, one of the reasons Romans 8 is so loved by the Old Baptist people is because it speaks of the absolute efficacy of Christ's work. It's unassailable. He's going to deliver every single one of His sheep. He's a good and great shepherd. And if He lost one of them, He wouldn't be a good or great shepherd. Right? It's just absolutely certain in affirmations like that. That's why we can say things like, we believe that the saints shall be preserved in grace and never fall away. And that's why our P is preserved rather than persevere. Quickly looking at the others, Acts 8.37. If you ever wonder why we baptize the way we do, important that we grab this one. Verse 36, And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, Here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And it's on that basis. And many other verses like it, Matthew 28, 19, John 3, 22 through 23, John 22, 17 through 20. 
We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of Jesus Christ and that true believers only are the subjects of baptism and that immersion is the apostolic mode. That's why we can make that affirmation because of what we find in things like Acts 8.37. The controversial one is in John 13, but the language is very clear and it's one that uh, as we have our communion and feet washing service coming up soon, it's one we should revisit here. This is why it's one of our distinguishing marks, I think, of our people. Verse 12 says, So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. That's really plain. And it's on that basis that we can say, We believe that as our Lord and Savior washed his disciples' feet, we ought to wash one another's feet. That's just not controversial among us. Let me quickly hit the last three here. Those are in the domain of ordinances. Matthew 25, 41 kind of deals with this final one that kind of is in the realm of limited atonement. I'll truncate this a little bit, but you, you can follow up by reading 34 through 41 or 34 through the end of the chapter. He's got the sheep and the goats separated on the left and right hand. And he says, Then shall he say also unto them on the left, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Right? I associate this with limited atonement because if Christ atoned for everyone, then they're all going to heaven. And this text is affirming that some people are going to end up in hell. It follows that Christ did not atone for everyone, right? We've already said that it was what He did. It was His one obedience. It's not His one obedience plus a bunch of stuff that you did. So His one obedience accomplished something. It accomplished the salvation of His people without the loss of one. And it follows from that unavoidably that He didn't die for all of humanity. And that's why that 11th one can say, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and a general judgment and that the felicity of the righteous will be eternal and the punishment of the wicked everlasting. The final two here dealing with church ordinances 1 Timothy 4.14, you know, there's a a, uh, tradition, a practice within the church that has to do with the laying on of hands and ordaining ministers to certain works. And that goes on to this day. I'm a recipient of that as is Brother Sonny and as have been all gospel ministers throughout time since the first century. Paul says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. There are certain things that you'll find in the Bible as you search this out more and more. There are things that men who are elders are permitted to do within the church that no one else is permitted to do. Right? That's just how it is. People don't like that. People want to think that anyone can do anything. But the Bible doesn't speak that way about it. A lot of churches now, a lot of Baptist churches even, have the practice of just saying, well, if you're a Baptist, then anybody can baptize anybody. And that's not what we see practiced in in the New Testament. And that's why we would say we believe that no minister has any right of administration of the ordinance, only such as are regularly baptized, called, and come under the imposition of hands by a presbytery, which is what was being talked about here. Right? That's why we make that statement. That statement doesn't have any legs of its own. It's simply a restatement of what we believe is taught in places like 1 Timothy 4.11. And finally, another one that kind of sets us apart. Let's look at Luke 22.14 as we close here. Verse 13, when they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him, he said unto them, 
with desire. I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then it goes on into the realm of the Lord's Supper. It talks about that first communion service there. And we practice close communion, which is our people, regularly baptized people of the same profession of faith of us in this church. We have communion with one another. Many churches have just said, well, anybody who comes in, whether they have a profession of faith or not, whether they're a Baptist or not, whether they understand anything that's been said, whether they have any Christian profession, why don't you just show up and you can take communion? That is not what's modeled here. The Lord's doing this with His disciples. You know, He didn't send one of them out with a sandwich board, say, come join us upstairs. We're going to have a free-for-all. Anybody can come take communion with us. Go out and gather them in so we can all take communion together. This is a close-knit ordinance. It is a family dinner. You follow me? You ever had a family meal? Like, this is an important, we're going to have a family meeting. Maybe you got something going on in your family. It's like, we all need to sit down together. We don't need the next door neighbors in here for this meal. We're going to sit down here. We're going to discuss some things. There's some stuff that needs to be understood within the family. And that's what's modeled in the New Testament. It's close communion. It is not just an open free-for-all where anybody can do whatever they want to. You can bring anybody in to sit at the Lord's table. And that's why we can say we believe that none but regularly baptized members have a right to commune at the Lord's table. A lot of people kind of vilify us for that, but we see that practice in the Bible. And I don't think we should be ashamed of it. So these articles of faith, I hope I've convinced you. I tried to do it quickly, and I feel like I may have done some disservice to it because I I got so run up on time. But I said before that if I had an opportunity to edit those articles of faith, you know, I'd probably make some changes here or there. You know, the best improvement of all of any article of faith would be to take those things and just post the Scriptures and say, we believe these Scriptures, because they teach those same things, do they not? The key point I'm trying to make here is that it all has to revolve around the primacy of the authority of Scripture. Men have said all kinds of things about what they believe the Bible teaches, and I'm telling you right now, if we could come up with a way to take any of those 13 articles of faith, if we could develop a biblical proof that said, you know what, number four is just wrong. We've looked at these scriptures. It militates against that. That is a bad statement. What would we do in that instance? Well, what's happened over the course of church history, as often as not, is you split the church. Because people get confused. Well, I, well my grandma said those were the articles of faith of our church, and that's what I want to, I want to affirm. Well, Grandma may have been wrong. You ever thought about that? Churches drift. They have problems. They have to be corrected. Sometimes when they're in error, they write down things that they believe, and those things they wrote down were in error, and they may need to be corrected. If we could come up with a definitive proof that one of those things is wrong as a church, the best thing we could do is to say, we ought to restructure our articles of faith because we don't believe that. We believe something different than that. And just saying grandma believed it is insufficient. Grandma may have been wrong. Now, hopefully what I did was prove to you that I believe those 13 articles of faith are correct. I do believe they're a good summary. But they need to take their proper place. That's what some people believed. And 
We are ever and always in the place and have the responsibility as God's people of saying, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. And that's the standard where it's proven. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.